This morning's scripture reading will be from Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. And Saul was consenting unto his death, and at that time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial, and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering to every house, and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies, and that were lame were healed. And there was a great joy in that city. But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him they, they had regard, because that of long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God, In the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Good morning, church family. It's a good day, great day. It's good to be part of this body here. Very thankful for uh, this morning. We are on the doorstep of the mission of Jesus Christ taking off. Up until this point, we've been studying the book of Acts all the way up until the end of chapter 7. The mission of Christ, which was for his apostles and the rest of us as the members of the church to go be witnesses of his resurrection to the ends of the earth. That mission, up until the end of chapter 7, had only made it to the city of Jerusalem. It was in the city of Jerusalem with the group of those devout Jewish people. And Peter and John and the rest of the apostles were sort of stirring up trouble amongst the Jews in Jerusalem. And the moment Stephen faces the chief priest and the, or the high priest, the elders, the council, the Sanhedrin, and presents to them the message of the gospel that Jesus is actually the answer for everything they've been looking for, They gnash their teeth at him, and they stone him to death. And from that moment, the gospel takes off into new places. It was the plan of Christ for this message to spread, not just to Jews, but to the whole world. And so here we are today, in this very room, in this very nation, because stories like Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 13, actually happened. So this text for us uh, this morning is we're going to talk about how the mission of Christ makes its way to the masses. And when I say the masses, what I'm talking about are people outside of our comfort zone, people beyond our borders, not just borders nationally or statewide, but borders uh, socially, borders in our circles. How does the gospel make it outside of our insulated place where we exist with the people that we know and are comfortable with? 
Well, this text in Acts chapter 8 is both a description of how it happened in the first century, and I believe there are principles that lay out for us the prescription for how you and I can take the mission to these masses, people beyond our comfort zone. We're going to answer four really simple questions, okay? Um, why the gospel moved, why it went somewhere outside of Jerusalem. Number two, we'll ask, who were the people that took the gospel? Who were these people? What were they like? Number three, we'll ask the question, how the gospel was carried? Like, like in what way was it carried out? And finally, we'll ask that age-old question, what did the gospel actually accomplish when it reached the masses? Let's get going. Number one, why did the gospel move? It was there in Jerusalem. Jews were converting. The people who were first Christians were already Jews. They were living in Jerusalem, going to the temple, and having sort of a side service of Christianity, yet still interacting with the Jews. And as they preached Jesus, they were facing challenges. As I said before, the high priest, uh, the chief, the elders, the Sanhedrin would oftentimes call, like Peter and John and others, before them and say, why are you preaching Jesus? Don't preach him anymore. They were being threatened for it. But the church was still growing, even though they were being threatened in Jerusalem. Why did the gospel move outside of Jerusalem? Well, the short answer is this. The gospel had no other choice. Persecution drove Christians out of Jerusalem and into Samaria. You notice it says in verse 1, Saul approved of the execution of Stephen. And there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were scattered through all, throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, it probably took something like the great persecution of the church for these Jewish people to go into the region of Samaria. Samaria was a place that was um, something that was looked down upon. They were disdained by the Jews. Culturally, religiously, they just had so much division um, between them. They, they just didn't get along. And so for Jews to spread into Samaria, persecution drove them there. But here's the deal. God used that trouble. What we see over and over in Scripture is this idea. That persecution, human difficulties, personal tragedies... While incredibly difficult and not to be minimized for the pain that they cause people, uh, the challenges that they bring to people, are ways that God oftentimes drives the gospel to places that we never imagined the gospel actually going. Now just think about it for a moment. These, these moments, persecution, challenges, difficulties, tragedies, do two really important things for us as Christians. They do two really important things for the mission of Christ and your own salvation. First of all, persecution, difficulties, tragedy, first and foremost, clarify what you value and what you believe. It's moments when the heat is applied that you begin to find out what you really believe. In moments of comfort and security, we can entertain a lot of ideas. We can spread our allegiances to a lot of different areas. We can agree with certain things. We can um, not take things as serious as we ought to take sometimes. But in moments where we're facing tragedy, difficulty, and persecution, those are the moments when the heat is applied and we find out what are the primary things 
What are the most important things that I believe? What are the most important things I value? And you can see how that can be very important for us as we develop convictions of Christianity. Secondly, it does this. Moments of tragedy and difficulty, persecution. They move us away from some people and towards other people. Now, this isn't always a social breakup, so to speak. Now, sometimes persecution can be. Maybe a particular group that you are associated with arises and finds out your convictions of faith and distance themselves from you. Or maybe they ridicule you so much that it pushes you out of that group. There can be a negative social breakup in these where you leave one group of people and go to another. That happens. And God can take the gospel from that group to the next group as you connect with them. But it can also happen, um, not in a negative fashion, but in a positive fashion. You face a certain health difficulty or financial crisis. Sometimes that pushes you into a new group of people that you may never have been connected to. Have you ever been into a hospital setting where people share the same disease or the same problem? The amount of uh, allegiance that happens amongst those groups is amazing. The, the way that they form and bond together. And so persecution or suffering or challenge oftentimes pushes us away from some groups and then to other groups. So do you see how inside persecution and challenges and difficulties, our convictions are shored up and our connections are made new. And in those moments, God can take the gospel, which becomes deeper in our convictions, to new people. So I say all that to say, Many of us have not experienced persecution because of our faith. Um, you, know, you know, Starbucks changing their color of their cup during Christmas time is not persecuting Christians. I mean, some people think that it's not. You know, when they take like the snowflakes off and just make it red, it's not an attack on Jesus. You know, sometimes Christians get, we can be a little sensitive. It's not. But I believe there will be times more and more in our culture where we are going to face persecution for convictions that you hold about Jesus Christ. And those persecutions will drive you from certain circles of social class, maybe to other circles. And if we lament and moan and whine and cry about all the things that we lose, we'll miss the opportunity of taking the gospel to new places. You see, I think comfort and ease are oftentimes the most stagnating things for the mission of Jesus Christ. They make us comfortable. They don't really drive us out. Like, like, we all, for the most part, get along here. We like each other. It's um, not overly challenging. And this comfort sometimes can be stagnating to our desire to go find new people who don't know the gospel because they don't necessarily understand all the social rules of how we get along here. So, you know, it makes it difficult. Persecution drives the gospel to new places and new people. Okay, that's why the gospel moved to the masses. Number two... Who took the gospel? Who took this message to the masses? Did you notice it in verse 1? He's very subtle, but he says it. After he says Saul approved of the execution of Stephen, there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, comma, what's the next line? Except the apostles. You see that? Who took, who was the first group of people that took the message of the gospel to people outside of Jerusalem? Peter? John? Matthew? No. 
He says, all of the church was scattered except for the apostles, except for them. You see, they were all scattered. The key is this, church members, not church professionals, took the gospel to the masses. This is crucial to church growth, critical to church expansion. We've got to understand this point. In the first century, everyone naturally, organically was evangelizing people that they came in contact with. Evangelism was not relegated to the professions or to the clergy, so to speak. Evangelism was a natural expression of conversation amongst people who were bumping into other people in their world. They naturally are telling people about Jesus Christ. We'll talk more about that in a moment, but I want to point this out. This is an incredible strength to Christianity. It's also a distinguishing difference between Christianity and other world religions. Every other world religion relies upon the professionals to propagate its beliefs. Christianity finds its strength in that every member, young, old, male, female, every member can evangelize. You see, for the most part, I can imagine in the first century there in Jerusalem, people were inviting their friends to come here eloquent Peter, right, or, or um, the, the great poet John who was preaching the gospel. And they were bringing them to hear eloquent speeches about the gospel. All of a sudden, then they're pushed out of Jerusalem. And now they've got to teach. And even if the teaching was not as eloquent as those apostles, it's oftentimes way more effective. You've got to get this. Even if you can't write a sermon outline and preach from a pulpit the way a preacher can, so often you are way more effective than any preacher I know. Because there's a ring of authenticity amongst members when they preach about why Jesus matters to them, why he's important. It, the, the biggest barrier I face in my work and my day-to-day, Monday to Friday, is people expect me to evangelize them. People assume we're going to get to the evangelizing moment when I'm having coffee with somebody who might not be a believer. People are just waiting for the, the penny to drop on, okay, when are we going to get to this Jesus thing? Because that's what you're paid to do. Now just imagine if all the members who aren't paid to do it but just have deep conviction in what they believe begin to spread that message. It has this beautiful ring of authenticity. It's believable. And I want you to know today, do not underestimate your ability, God's ability to work through you in your witness of Jesus Christ. Don't do it. You are probably the most dynamic method. I, I don't say probably. You here are the most dynamic method of outreach our church leaders can ever invent. There's not a book that we can buy. There's not a, a guy that we can call to come in for a seminar. There's not a poster we can print. There's not a radio program we can start. There's not a Facebook ad we can come up with. You people in the pews right now are the most dynamic evangelistic tool we have beyond anything Matt or myself or our elders could do. You are. And I don't want you to underestimate that. So why the gospel went, there was persecution driving people with deep convictions to new people. Who took the gospel? It was all the church members, not the apostles. Well, how did the gospel go? What method did they use? Look down in uh, verses 6 through 8. What you see in verse 5 is the generic, I'm sorry, verse 4, the generic umbrella that, that all people went and spread the gospel. What you see in verse 5 is a very specific story about Philip. Now, you'll remember Philip from chapter 6. Philip was a deacon. 
Philip was picked because he was a man of wisdom. He's full of the Holy Spirit. And he was a man who could serve the Hellenistic Jews who were widows who needed the distribution of food. Philip was a man who was good at logistics. He knew how to get food from one place to another place without it spoiling. He was smart. But he wasn't necessarily a preacher. It wasn't his first calling. It wasn't his first job. But we see in verse 5 that Philip goes down to Samaria and he proclaims Christ in verse 5. In verse 6 it says this, The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Verse 7, For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had, who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. There were two main things that accompanied the ministry of Philip that, that you and I need to take hold of today. Two main things. First of all, Philip preached the Christ and the good news of the kingdom. Notice what he preached. It says in verse 4 that they went and they preached the word. Verse 5, Peter preached the Christ. Verse 12, it says that they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Here was the content of, of Philip's message. Jesus, Jesus, the kingdom, the king and his kingdom. Jesus, the good news, the name of Jesus. Do you understand what he was preaching? The greatness and the glory of the person and work of Jesus Christ. You've got to get comfortable with him. You've got to get familiar with Jesus. You've got to begin to understand it because that's what Philip was preaching. That's what you and I need to preach. Philip didn't walk into a new community and diagnose their moral shortcomings and advise them on moral behaviors that they should change. He didn't do that. Philip didn't walk into that community and, and analyze their religions and explain to them why their religions were wrong. What Philip did was he gave them the man that motivates a moral life. A man that would sacrificially die for you, that would give his very best so that you would become your very best. He preached Jesus, and when people understood who Jesus was, they wrapped their lives around him and said, yeah, I want to follow what he says. I want to raise my morality because of look at what he's done for me. He preached the motivation for morality. And he preached not just a religion. Get this. He preached the object of religion, the aim of religion. He preached the thing that they should be gazing at, the thing that they should be adoring. He preached the one that they should be loving above themselves, the one that they should, out of gratitude, be praising in adoration. Philip didn't walk into a community and identify their moral shortcomings and their religious failings. He presented the greatness of Jesus Christ, the motivation to be moral, and the object of human worship. And when they understood Jesus, when they understood that Christianity is Jesus, that we must preach and teach him, when he is fully known, lives are submitted to him. Friends, I want to encourage us to, to not be so shocked when non-Christians act and think like non-Christians. We just have to back up being so amazed when people who don't hold the worldview of Christianity act like people who aren't Christians and think like people who aren't Christians. And the way you reverse that is not just coming and giving them an alternative way to live without changing a mindset or a worldview. You've got to present to them 
that Jesus Christ is the sovereign king of the universe, that he was dead, he laid in a tomb, and he's resurrected, now he reigns in heaven, and you present the evidence and the truth of that. And when people understand and then they believe that Jesus is the sovereign king of the world, that he raised from the dead and that he is God, guess what? All those moral things that they don't like or those quarrels that they don't, they just fall at their feet and submit to him. You won't get people to submit to moral obligations to Jesus if they don't think Jesus is king. If they don't think he's God, if they don't think he rules the universe, they won't submit their lives and their moral behavior to him. We've got to start there. We've got so many fights that are out in the cultural front right now that have everything to do with moral decisions. And I think we need to stem them as much as possible. But if we're going to make a difference at the grassroots level amongst our communities with people, we've got to address worldview issues, mindset issues. People will not conform their lives to the moral standards of Jesus if they don't think he's the sovereign king. They won't. And we've got to start there. And, and Philip started there. But he didn't just preach. Philip also served the needs of the people. You notice uh, Philip, or I'm sorry, Luke is very careful as a physician to point out in verse 7 the two different things that are happening there. We see both physical needs being met and addressed, and we see spiritual and emotional needs being healed. People in the culture and the community need to see us having deep amounts of compassion towards people with physical needs. This would be the poor and the hungry. This would be the orphans and the widows. Those that have deep, deep needs, we need to have compassion towards them and be answering the call to serve them. And at the same time, people need to see us demonstrating the power of the gospel over emotional and spiritual problems. The gospel needs to be solving people's anxiety issues. The gospel needs to be coming into people's worries and fears and solving them for them, satisfying them. It needs to be dealing with the restlessness of our culture, which is rampant in America. People are constantly restless. They can't stop working. They can't stop moving. They can't stop doing. And Christianity's got to come in and show people lives of joy, lives of peace, lives of rest. And when the gospel begins to deal with both physical and spiritual needs, and it begins to show people that, we'll be like Philip and have the attention so that our words begin to have power. So why did the gospel move? Because persecution drove deep convictions to new people. Who took the gospel? It was all the church members, not the professionals. How did the gospel go? It was preaching Jesus, the greatness of him, and serving the needs of people. And finally, what did the gospel accomplish? Luke does something really unique here. Let me finish with you really strong. Luke does something really unique here. In verses 6 through 11... He tells the story in reverse order. Verses 6 through 8, he tells the story of what happened when the gospel showed up. When, when Philip preached the gospel, he shows the positive response of the crowd to the gospel. But then in verses 9 through 11, he goes kind of retro. He goes out of chronological order, and he shows the condition of the crowd before Philip showed up. Before Philip, there's a man named Simon who was practicing magic and he amazed the people. And Simon was a man who told the people, hey, I'm great. I'm powerful. And as he did some magic, the people gave attention to Simon and they declared that he must be the power of God. He, he tells it in reverse order. Strange. But what Luke is doing is comparing and contrasting these two scenarios 
before the gospel showed up and after the gospel showed up. And there are two constants that we see both before and after. There was the crowd that was there. And there's two things that show up in both scenarios. First one is attention is given. You notice three times it says that the crowd paid attention. Or if you have the old version, gave heed unto, right? That that means they focused their attention on something. The crowd was giving attention first to Simon and then to Philip. So attention is given. But the second thing is this. Greatness is attributed. Before the gospel, attention was given to Simon. Greatness was attributed to Simon. The gospel shows up and attention is given to Philip and greatness is attributed to Jesus. You see, what Luke's doing for us, get this, Luke is showing us that the gospel exposes our fraudulent saviors. Before Jesus, the crowd gave attention and attributed greatness. When Jesus is preached, they turn their attention and then assign greatness to something else. Here's the point. Attention will always be given and greatness will always be assigned to something. You in this room right now, the world at large, everyone in in this world will give their attention to something and will attribute greatness to something. The gospel is not this new idea that awakens in you attention and greatness. You're already paying attention to something. You're already acclaiming something to be great in your life. And the gospel shows up and transfers that back to where it was always supposed to be. And here's what the gospel does. When preached faithfully, the gospel exposes the fraudulent saviors in our life. When you pay attention to something and you attribute greatness to that thing, that thing becomes your savior. You're looking to that thing to give you peace, to give you joy, to give you security, to give you stability. You're looking to that thing. And so maybe that's your career and you give all of your attention to it. And it's the greatest thing that you've got. And if you get that thing nailed down, you'll have joy and peace and security and stability. It's your savior. Or maybe it's your family. And so everything in that that gets all your attention, it's the greatest thing you've ever thought of. And it uh, consumes you in hopes that when it's all right, You'll have peace and joy and stability and security. Maybe it's your financial status. How's your retirement funds, right? And you give all your attention to that. You're on the internet, you know, edwardjoneswhat.com, and you're just always focused on it. And that's the most important thing. Because when that's right, you'll have peace and joy, security and stability. Maybe it's your social circles, your friends. And you're always worried about what people are doing or what they think of you. And and they're the most important thing. So you're paying attention and attributing greatness. And when all of that is aligned and you have the right friends and they think the right things of you, you'll have peace and joy and stability and security. You see, when the gospel shows up, it exposes those fraudulent saviors in your life. And it tells you only in Jesus Christ can you have peace and joy, stability and security. The question is, for you, diagnostically, what do you pay attention to most? When you don't have to think about anything, what do you think about? What's captured your mind? And what do you attribute greatness to? What what do you think is the most important thing 
If you don't know, look at your time, your money, and your people around you, and you'll find out pretty quickly. You see, Jesus is the only answer to the eternal question every human has. Where can I find peace, joy, and security? Where can I find it? And every person in the world is asking that question. And Jesus is not the new answer. He's the eternal answer. So ask yourself this, as we, you and I think about how we're going to be effective in spreading this mission. First and foremost, I'm going to press on you again and again, again, week after week. What wound has Jesus himself healed you from? Do you know? Can you say it? What fear has Jesus calmed in you that you've been so afraid of? What desire has been so overwhelming to you that Jesus has finally satisfied? What worry has consumed you that Jesus finally settled? And if you don't know an answer to that question, please call somebody this week. Now's not the time to be ashamed if you don't know the answer to that question. Now's not the time to let Satan come in and rob another week of your life so you come back next week and you hear the same message from me again, which is going to be the gospel saves you. How has it saved you? And if it hasn't saved you, don't let Satan take another week from you with pride or with shame, not asking somebody for help so that Jesus finally changes your life. Because here's what I know. I can beg you week after week to go tell people about Jesus, but if he hasn't changed your life, you won't tell people. And so the only thing I'm worried about is Jesus changing your life. And when he does, I know you'll share it with people. When he calms your fears and gives you joy and gives you peace, settles your worries and heals your wounds, you're going to tell people. The gospel is designed to expose every false savior you're trusting right now to deal with your fears and worries and wounds and reveal the greatness of Jesus. And when you experience relief from those fraudulent saviors that promise everything but just take life from you, you'll have an unshakable joy in Jesus Christ. And with deep conviction, regardless of persecution, you'll declare him wherever you go. And if that's not your reality, we always make this offer. Whether it's Monday, Sunday, Thursday, it doesn't matter. Call or come anytime. Let's make Jesus the Lord of our life. Let's stand and sing.